Well, please turn in your Bible to John chapter 20. And if you did not bring a Bible, that's all right. We have one in the seat in front of you there below. You can pull one out. I believe it's on page 852. You'll find the Gospel of John, John 20. In fact, we're going to start in a moment actually in John 19, but on our way into John 20. Many of us have had the sad duty of planning a funeral after the death of a loved one. This past August, my mom passed away, and I had that experience that so many of you before me have had, standing there in a hospital and then mind racing with all the things that you have to do now. Who needs to be notified? Who's going to take her body from here? When will we have the funeral, and where will that be? And then there's a blitz of activity all around that, even after the hospital you know, what, what accounts need to be closed and what do we do with these belongings? It's all so intense. And aren't we grateful for a God who sustains us with his grace through times like that? But as today we think about the death of Jesus, it's all of a greater magnitude than that, even in greater intensity. Because the death of Jesus happened so suddenly, so violently, so hatefully. You remember it was on that Sunday when Jesus came into Jerusalem. And on that Sunday before his death, everything was as it ought to have been. People are celebrating Jesus. They're shouting Hosanna. They're waving palm branches. And we think, yeah, that's, that's right. That's what Jesus deserves, that worship. But by Friday, we find that Jesus was being mocked and tortured with a crown of thorns, a severe scourging, and death by crucifixion. Remember, Jesus didn't die instantly on a cross. It doesn't work that way. Jesus died over a period of six hours on that cross for us. And at last, Jesus said this. He said, it is finished. And the scripture says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus died. But that's not the end of the story. Not by far. That is not the end of the story. We're going to go now deeper into the scripture to see what happened next. And we're going to see first Jesus' burial. So for a moment, we'll stay in John 19 on our way to John 20. John 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. All four gospel writers tell us of Joseph of Arimathea. Luke describes him as a man who was good and upright. Mark tells us that he was also a part of the council. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. He was a leader in that group, but he disagreed with their plan to crucify Jesus. But John tells us even more than that, that he was already a disciple of Jesus. He was a secret disciple of Jesus. And John tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was not alone, that Nicodemus was there helping him with the body of Jesus. Maybe that name Nicodemus sounds familiar. 
Way back in John chapter 3, we read about Nicodemus who came at night to meet with Jesus. That's the occasion where Jesus says, you know, if you want to go to heaven, you must be born again. That Nicodemus, he's now with Joseph, caring for the body of Jesus. Mark's gospel tells us that Joseph, listen, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. I would say that's bold. You've just seen Jesus crucified, and you're going to go ask permission of the man who sentenced him to death for the body of Jesus. There he comes for the body of Jesus. It's quite bold. Here's Joseph. We're told he was a secret disciple of Jesus. He picks maybe the worst time to come out as a public disciple of Jesus. Hey, I'm, I'm identifying with Jesus on the day when it would be the most unpopular to do so because that was the same day that Jesus was crucified. How bold was this? He goes to the man who sentenced him and he could do the same to him. But I, I need, I want the body of Jesus. He's granted permission. I love the boldness of Joseph of Arimathea here. By the way, today's a great day for you to come out as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Maybe for some reason you've been hiding your devotion for Jesus. Maybe you've been trying to tamp that down. I don't want people to know how devoted I am. I don't really want to be that devoted, lest it cost me something in this culture. Today be a great day, like Joseph of Arimathea, to say, you know what? I'm not going to hide this any longer. I'm not going to fear anybody else's opinion any longer. If Joseph could go before Pilate to request the dead body of Jesus for a proper burial, I could stand for Jesus that I know not only died, but was raised. Shouldn't you be unashamed of Jesus? Shouldn't you overcome your fears of what other people think and begin to follow Jesus fully, even in our culture? Well, when Joseph asked for Jesus's body, the scripture tells us in Mark 15 that Pilate was surprised that he's already dead. Remember, we saw last time that crucifixions, the death by crucifixion, sometimes could take a matter of days. If the Romans wanted you to agonize even longer, they could keep you alive longer on a cross. But here's Jesus dead after only, only a terrible six hours. And so Pilate asked for confirmation. A centurion confirms, yes, he's indeed dead. And so Pilate released the body over to Joseph and to Nicodemus. And they take the body away for burial. And we're told the place where Jesus was buried. It was a new tomb in a garden there near Golgotha. We're told what Joseph and Nicodemus did. They brought 75 pounds of spices and lemon strips of cloth to prepare his body for a proper burial. John says here, this was the Jewish burial custom. So the Jewish people at that time did not embalm bodies. Others did that, but they would use spices, fragrant spices, and they would pack those on the deceased person and then wrap with these cloths. In fact, it might bring to mind something like when we think about mummies, how people in ancient times would sometimes wrap bodies. This is more of the idea here. And so they would wrap the body with these cloths, and then the head would have a different cloth over, over the head of the person who had passed away. Now, remember these burial cloths, because we're going to see them again in just a moment. Matthew, Mark, and Luke also tell us that women observed where Joseph and Nicodemus buried Jesus. Matthew also adds the detail that the Jewish leaders, they also asked Pilate for guards to put around the tomb. Listen to how Matthew records, records this, Matthew 27, 62. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir... We remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. 
and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. And so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Here's Jesus, crucified brutally, buried that same evening on that Friday in a tomb there nearby to where he was crucified. A stone is rolled into place. Guards were outside and there's a seal on the stone. Before we move on to the glorious resurrection, let's spend a moment here just considering that Jesus did indeed die, just as the scripture said that he would. And surely when you see Jesus dying on a cross, you say that looks like the ultimate weakness, the ultimate defeat. But in reality, we see there the ultimate victory for us. Jesus' death on the cross was not the failure of God's plan. Jesus' death on the cross was God's plan. Think of it as Jesus died at the hands of hateful men. God allowed that. More than allowing it, God planned that, that God might demonstrate his great, great love for you. This is why Jesus came. So why would God become flesh for this reason? So Jesus took on flesh and blood that 33 years later, he would give that flesh and blood on a cross in payment for your sins. I hope this morning you'll see with me the connection between Christmas and Easter. Would you consider with me the connection between the manger and the cross? The connection between the incarnation and the crucifixion. Jesus took on a body, flesh and blood, fully God, fully man, takes on that flesh and blood so that he would give that flesh and blood on the cross. We've been singing about that blood for a reason. That was the price paid to cover, to atone for all of our sins. So his death for us was a substitutionary atonement. <clears throat> Jesus died for your sins. Jesus had no sins of his own. He's sinless. Even Pilate said, I don't see anything of him in him that's worthy of death. Jesus had never sinned. You and I have sinned plenty. We needed a sinless one to die in our place. And that was the plan of God, giving his own son. And Jesus went to the cross for you, to die for you there. Jesus indeed is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus indeed is the Passover lamb. That if that blood is applied to us, as our choir sang, through our faith in Jesus, that blood is covering us, then the judgment of God will pass over us now and at the final judgment, we are safe, even saved, through the death of Jesus. And there's salvation in no one else other than Jesus Christ, who gave his blood for you and was raised. So Jesus was crucified on a Friday. He was laid in a tomb on that Friday. But Jesus did not stay in that tomb. Jesus leaves his grave. Jesus rose sometime very, very early on that Sunday morning. Jesus was raised. He walked out of the tomb alive. Let's read about it. John 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So taking all four Gospels together, we know that at least four women had come early to the tomb. John focuses on Mary Magdalene for good reason, which you're going to see in a moment. But at least four women were there. But picture it. It's still early, very dark. 
It's just now at the time of sunrise and they're startled when they get there, when they notice the stone has been rolled away from the entrance of this tomb. And the conclusion they came to, it's understandable. They know, somebody has stolen away the body of Jesus. And, and we find now Mary takes off running to notify the disciples of this terrible development. Verse two, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, which is John, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Let's think on this a moment. And would you feel all the emotions going on as John recounts this? Do you sense the pace of all this? Even the chaos of these moments, the confusion and the excitement? And did you notice all the running going on here? So when Mary noticed and the other women noticed that the stone was not there and Jesus isn't there, she takes off running to the disciples. And then we have Peter and John. Now they're running toward the tomb. They leave Mary wherever she is. They take off running. And I love the details here where we're told how fast John is running. You know, when you're running with somebody, usually it's polite. Let me just keep your pace. Whoever the slower person is, well, I'll hang back with you. Not, not this day. This is, this is too important. Something's up. Something big is happening. And John just tells you, I outran him. I got there first. There's no waiting up. I, I love the details of that. Peter shows up. But what do they see? They see a lot of empty. An empty tomb. His body's not there. And these grave clothes, these grave cloths, they're empty. Jesus had been raised from the dead. And Jesus had unwrapped himself from these cloths. Even the head cloth we're told is folded up neatly off to the side. Some people have pointed out this is another evidence of the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus. That this could not be the stealing of a body as the Jewish leaders were kind of alleging before and after. It wouldn't make no sense anyway. What would that accomplish to steal away a body? But if you were to steal a body, you wouldn't unwrap the body to take it away. This is much easier to transport a body that's already wrapped up. Be much cleaner after that brutal death that Jesus died to take the body wrapped up. You certainly wouldn't take the time to unwrap it. You wouldn't fold up neatly a head cloth and set it off to the side. Here's just another evidence dropped in here for us. This is exactly what they saw. Jesus was alive. In fact, even at this point, more evidences are to come. But even at this point, we're told in verse 8, this is when John believed. He saw the empty tomb, the empty grave cloths that had been around Jesus. He saw that and believed. Now he's going to understand a whole lot more. Even the next verse says they didn't even fully understand yet how the scriptures talked about the resurrection. But they're going to come to see that more later. They're going to remember how Jesus talked about rising on the third day, all that. But even at this point, we're told that he believes. And can I tell you, there's already enough evidence for you right now. We're not even at the end of the message you could believe in Jesus right now, just based on Jesus' death, 
and that the tomb is empty and the grave clothes are off to the side, that's enough for you. Because <clears throat> it was enough for John to say, I, I believe based on that. Goodness, if we, if we saw last time a thief on a cross believed in Jesus before his death was even complete. If that man could say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, listen, remember me. Or, or actually, you're going to today be with me in paradise. If a man can get saved on the cross, you can get saved today knowing, well, he not only died, he was raised because there's an empty tomb. If Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus could be so bold as to receive the body, a disciple already, you can already believe right now just based on the emptiness of the tomb. Jesus was raised from the dead. You can believe that. In fact, I urge you to believe that, to trust in Jesus, to rejoice in Jesus. Jesus was crucified for you on a Friday, and he was raised to life on a Sunday. Now, what's the resurrection do for us? Well, resurrection confirms that Jesus' death for us was accepted by the Father. The wrath of God truly was satisfied on Christ. The resurrection vindicates Christ, lets us know this is true. Resurrection assures us that our sins have been cleansed and Jesus has overcome death for us. And the resurrection comforts us that we too will live forever after physical death because of our faith in Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said in the occasion of him raising Lazarus to life in John eleven twenty five? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. So don't, don't wait. Go ahead, even now, right in the privacy of your heart and say, Jesus, I do believe in you. I'm asking you to be my savior. Well, returning to John's account here, we have Mary coming back to the tomb. She had sprinted away to Peter and John. They sprinted to the tomb, left her there. She now makes her way back to the tomb. Peter and John are already gone, but she's there now. And she's gonna be the one who gets the first resurrection appearance of Christ. She's gonna see him first alive from the dead. Let's read about it now in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And then he had said these things to her. Think of it. Mary Magdalene is the first to see Jesus alive after his death on a cross. The Lord had left his tomb alive. Angels were there declaring the resurrection. But most of all, most of all and best of all, Jesus himself standing outside the tomb to reveal himself to Mary. Consider with me, of all the people who could have been the first to see him alive again, God chose for Mary Magdalene to be the very first. Here's a woman who had known much sin in her life, known for sin previously before she met Jesus. Here's a woman of whom the scripture says Jesus had previously cast out seven demons from her. 
Here's a woman who had been forgiven so much. Here's a woman set free from so much. There's no wonder why she loved Jesus so much. And she has this great privilege of seeing Jesus first and getting to tell the others, hey, I've seen him alive. She goes from grieving to, to in mourning him to rejoicing in those moments outside of the tomb. Her Savior is alive. And now more running. She's now running back to tell the disciples what she has seen. Well, the other gospel writers tell us, tell us other things that happened there. But John goes now to the evening on that first Easter and gives us the occasion where Jesus now reveals himself to the disciples. We pick this up now in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where, G where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then his disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Oh, they were glad. Here's Jesus. He reveals himself to them, shows the nail-pierced hands, the wound in his side. It's really him alive. And he speaks peace to them. And this is noteworthy because Jesus told them in the upper room before that he would be giving them peace. Remember this? John 16, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. No did he. No did he. So the world gave their most to him, the worst they could do to him, crucifying him. And Jesus has overcome the cross. He has risen from the dead. And then the next thing Jesus does in verse 21, he commissions them. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is interesting. So Jesus breathes on them. He imparts the Holy Spirit to them. This is going to be fulfilled in its fullness at Pentecost, where the Spirit's going to come so dramatically, powerfully, even visibly there. But here's Jesus imparting the Spirit. He's reminding them of what he had already promised, that the Spirit of truth, the Comforter, is going to come to them. Here he gives them a taste of that here. And he gives them the commission. You're going to take this gospel. As the Father sent me to bring your salvation to pass, you're going to go out and share this message. In fact, that's how people are going to be forgiven or not forgiven as they share the gospels. People respond with faith or reject the message. But let's reminded, be reminded here, we too are sent. As Jesus came, we are now his disciples alive in these days. We also have been sent with this good news to everybody near and far. So it's also glorious, it's also fast-paced here, but someone is missing in all of this good news. And it's one of the disciples. It's the disciple named Thomas. And Jesus mercifully now is going to give him an encounter with himself risen. But first, let's read about Thomas's despair and unbelief initially. This is John 20, picking up in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's Thomas. And I'm sure Thomas wanted to believe. But listen, we saw him crucified. You, you just don't come back from that. You, you don't come back to life from that. Thomas had been to other funerals. 
And he had seen how this typically works. Now, he had seen Lazarus raise a life, but, but this is how this typically works. Somebody dies, they don't come back from that. And he also knows people sometimes get confused. I don't know what you guys thought you saw, but unless I have this personal encounter with Jesus, I'm just not going to believe it. Rereading that account this week, it made me think about about 32 years ago when Joy came into the room with one of those home pregnancy tests, and she let me know that we were expecting our first child. And we've been wanting a child, and I was excited about this news, but I, I couldn't believe it. I remember looking at that little stick, and I thought, <clears throat> Joy, I, I don't know. That stick could be wrong. I, I remember telling her, I need somebody in a white lab coat to tell me <laughs> that we're expecting a baby. Then, then I'll get excited. So we had to set an appointment. She's already excited, but I'm like, I don't know. <clears throat> so we go, and, and we have the pregnancy test at a doctor's office, and, and the doctor comes out and just starts talking about next steps. I said, wait, wait. So, so she is pregnant. Yeah, of course, she's pregnant. So then I could get excited about that. I had the same sensation with our other two children coming along. Like, I just, I just need to hear a doctor say it. I needed convincing proof. I think about some of you who've gone through the adoption process. I bet there's a moment in that process for you as you're adopting a precious child and you want to get excited. You've been matched to a child, but, but you know how things can fall through. I need to know. I need it confirmed. I need, I need that stamp. I need that judge to say something. I need that phone call. Something is going to tell me. I need convincing proof. Thomas was asking for that, and mercifully, eight days later, Thomas gets it. Can you imagine how agonizing these eight days were? But now, verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. But believe, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. All of Thomas's questions now evaporated in the presence of the risen Christ. He went from saying, I don't believe and I won't believe until I see. He goes from that to one of the greatest declarations of faith recorded in all the scriptures where he said, my Lord and my God. Now, in our culture, we hear those words and we think, well, is he just saying God's name in vain? I mean, everybody speaks that way. It, absolutely not. By the way, it's a sin to do that, to misuse God's name, just flippantly call out my Lord or my God. John's not doing that. Wouldn't have entered his mind to do that. A faithful Jewish person would never do that. And so don't, don't discount this as he's just exclaiming excitement and sinning by saying that. No, he's making a rich theological statement in his joy there. This risen one standing in front of me is my Lord and he is my God. Do you remember how John started this gospel? Back in the first verse of John, John 1.1, we read about Jesus being God. We read this, in the beginning was the word, speaking of Jesus, and the word was with God and the word was God. And here we are now in John chapter 20 after the resurrection and Thomas exclaims the same truth, Jesus, my Lord, my God. It's an incredible declaration. You're my Lord, meaning take over, I'm yours, I yield everything to you. By the way, that's what it means that Jesus is your Lord. If that word means anything to you, it means Jesus is now in the driver's seat of your life. You're trusting him and he's now the leader, the unquestioned leader of your life in every area of life. This is what, this is what Thomas, you're the risen savior. Of course, you're now in charge of me. 
And you are my God. You are to be worshipped. You indeed are God in the flesh. Resurrection crystallized all this for Thomas in a moment with life-changing joy. Wouldn't it have made no sense if Thomas had gone from unbelief to belief to being apathetic? He'd be like, well, all right, I'm convinced now. I see the nail prints. I see his side. And so now I'm convinced of resurrection. Now I'm going to put that in the good to know category. It wasn't like, oh, I see you alive. Well, that's good to know. I had some intellectual questions about that. And now you've satisfied those. Now I know you're alive and I'm just going to go on with the life I've been living. That makes no sense. That's not what you do in the presence of one alive from the dead. He made the only same response. You were crucified. You were raised to life. You're my Lord. You are my God. But what are the alternatives? Because many of us have, have lived the alternatives before that type of profession. I, I remember in my life, I never questioned growing up when I heard that Jesus died on a cross. I never doubted that. People I loved and trusted told me Jesus died. All right, I believe that. And they told me that Jesus was raised from the dead. I, I, don't, I can't remember a time in my life when I did not believe that information. But for many years of my life, before I was saved at 17, I just didn't care. It was just information. Jesus died. He was raised from the dead. Of course, everybody knows that. And now let me live my life. Maybe you're that way today. Yeah, I don't, I don't doubt that. I don't need convincing. Jesus died. He was raised. But so what? Jesus died. He was raised. I'm still the leader of my life. Jesus died. He was raised. I believe that. Then I don't really need Jesus. I don't really want him in my life. Now, if he wants to sprinkle a blessing here or there, if he wants to be like a celestial genie for me, I'll take the blessings. But he's not going to be the Lord of my life. He's not going to be somebody that I worship every day of my life. I just don't have the bearing. What is that? But, but that's insane thinking. When you really believe, if you think, I know, hey, hold on. I really do believe he died for me. I really do believe on the third day he was raised from the dead. Who is he to me? The only sane answer. And the Holy Spirit helps us to see this. Oh, you are my Lord and my God. I, I will have no other inferior view of you now that I know that you are alive. Today, you need to make that same declaration of faith in Jesus. Jesus, you're my Lord. You, you're my God. I, I'm praying all around this room and those watching the live stream, you're having that conversation with the Lord right now. Lord, I, I have totally underestimated you. I've let this information just float around in my head. I, I didn't even understand what I was believing. But now I do and I see the implications of this and I see that Thomas, he was right. I joined Thomas in declaring, you're my savior. You're my Lord. You are my God. Well, Thomas's faith is affirmed here. Notice what Jesus says to him. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Here's another moment where I believe Jesus was thinking about us. Because Thomas, I've given you this great gift. You're living here in the first century. I'm in the room with you, but there are going to be people, millions of them, who are going to come afterwards. They won't be in this room. They won't see what you're seeing, but how blessed they are because they're going to believe without seeing it themselves. And that's, that's my story. Many of you around the room, that's your story. We weren't there, but based on credible eyewitnesses like John, who's recorded this for us, we're saying, oh, I believe that. I have no doubt that Jesus died for me. I have no doubt that he was raised from the dead. And I believe in him in the same way that Thomas, same way that John, same way that Peter did. Now hear what's on the line for us when we believe. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So why do we have this? Why was this recorded for us? John says, this is so that you will believe. Believe what? 
Believe that Jesus is the Christ, meaning he is the Savior. Believe what? Believe that he is the Son of God. And believe that by trusting in him, you can have life, even eternal life, in his name. Today's a great day to believe in Jesus, to trust in him as your Savior, that you might receive a gift of everlasting life. That's why Jesus came. And this testimony for you is enough. Millions have believed based on the testimony of the apostles as they told us about Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. Today, believe in him. That's your move today, to trust in Jesus. It's going to involve repentance. That biblical word repentance means to change your mind. Maybe up to this moment, you've been thinking, I, I live my life really apart from Jesus. Jesus is kind of an add-on to my life, but you're going to repent of that thinking today. In light of him dying for you and being raised, he can't be just an occasional extracurricular. Now you think about who he is today. I changed my mind on Jesus. He's central to my life. He's the only one I'm going to trust. I could never make my way to heaven on my own. I need a savior, a sinless one who would die for me to cover my sins, to give his blood for me. I'm now trusting Jesus only. That's a big moment of repentance for you. That's a life change like we see in the apostles. And then believer, one who has already trusted in Jesus, would you let the news of the resurrection flood you anew with fresh passion for Jesus? You can't truly believe in one who died for you and was raised to give you everlasting life and be just kind of whatever about Jesus. You can't be apathetic about Jesus. Would you let this good news refresh in you a fresh passion for Jesus? How about this also? A fresh confidence in Jesus. What problem do you have in your life that a risen Savior can't help you through? Last night was another one of those nights when at 2 a.m. I was awake. 3 a.m. I was awake again. And I've told you in the past that when I wake up at 2 or 3, whatever problem might enter my mind is going to seem huge at 2 or 3 in the morning. And I, I almost, I kind of do chuckle to myself when it happens. Like, oh, here we go. Here we go. And I know, I know this is going to seem bigger. This is nothing. And I start quoting scripture. I'm going to cast all my cares upon you because you care for me. But I had fresh ammunition last night when I woke up. These little what ifs started floating through my head. And I thought, you know, no, I have the risen Savior. What possible what if could undo me? And so there's the ability to have peace when you know the risen Savior. There's confidence in him. We also should have courage for Jesus in light of him being the risen Savior. These, these disciples, so fearful, so fearful that first Easter morning. By that night, seeing Jesus, encountering him, and, and the weeks that followed those other post-resurrection experiences, they went and changed the world. Particularly after Pentecost, they changed the world. They went from scared to world changers through this. So listen, let's, let's be full of passion, full of confidence, full of courage, and let's go with the message of Jesus. I want to close with this. It's a quote from Chuck Lawless. He's a professor at Southeastern Seminary, uh, a good Christian leader. And he wrote this about our responsibility to share the gospel. He says, I'm truly grateful, incredibly grateful for Jesus's death and resurrection today. I'm so thankful that death is not final, that resurrection and heaven are real. I'm humbled by the opportunity to join with my brothers and sisters in celebration this weekend. But many people will not be celebrating today or tomorrow or at all. Billions even. Billions who don't even know that Jesus ever existed. Billions for whom the cross is just a piece of wood and an empty tomb is but a fantasy. Many of them will sacrifice animals, offer fruit, and verbalize prayers to false gods this weekend. But they'll continue to live in fear of the powers and in fear of death. They'll follow their own religious rituals toward eternal judgment. Still others around the world have heard of Jesus, but have denied him by rejecting his deity or ignoring his demands. They're not only lost, but they have rejected the light that many others haven't 
even been exposed to yet. None of these are joining us in singing praise choruses about new life this weekend. And sadly, many will die this Resurrection Sunday with no assurance of heaven. Do we rejoice this weekend? Absolutely. Should we sing loudly? Like never before. Celebrate victory over death with great fervor. Enjoy fellowship with other believers? Surely so. But even as we rejoice, sing, celebrate, and fellowship, we should also weep, pray, and go. Too much of the world won't join the celebration of these days. I'm reminded this resurrection weekend just how much they're missing. So today, believe in Jesus Christ. Experience salvation, new birth yourself by trusting in Jesus. Rejoice in him, be confident in him, and let's be bold with this good news of Jesus Christ, near and far. Pray with me. Lord, this is great news. And we're so glad the first disciples, men like John, men like Thomas, were so changed by this good news, seeing you alive, that they set out to change the world with this good news in obedience to you commissioning them. Thank you that they shared the gospel to people who shared the gospel to people who shared the gospel. And that good news has reached us. And Lord, we are believing in response to this wonderful news of a Savior. But Lord, we want to also love enough, love you enough and love others enough to continue boldly sharing this good news with a world that is so obvious is in need of you. God, give us fresh courage, fresh passion, fresh obedience, even to the Great Commission. How we delight ourselves in you, Lord Jesus. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.